You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, Attorney Dan Mayer and Licensed Counselor Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now, here are your hosts. Hi there and welcome back. Today, Dan and I are going to be talking with you about telehealth. As you know, telehealth has been a lifesaver in many ways during the pandemic, and there have been a bazillion opportunities to learn about telehealth as a result. Nonetheless, I imagine that many people who started using telehealth at the start of the pandemic did so out of necessity. So what does that mean? That means that you may not have had the training or the time to do the research that you needed to do to make sure that you are crossing your T's and dotting your I's when setting up your practice to be doing telehealth and to be telehealth ready. So today's episode is going to be for those people who have been doing telehealth, but who might know that there are some things that they need to look at to be truly informed and to be truly compliant. The reason why this is important and why as a practitioner, you should be aware and thinking about what are best practices can really be explained in a simple uh, example. If you're listening to this, what I want you to do, as long as you're not driving in the car, uh, for everyone else, I want you to close your eyes and think back to 2019, okay? It's almost Halloween, right? Maybe you have children, uh, clients who who have been telling you how excited they are about their costumes during their appointments in your office, okay? Now, flash forward one year. Now it's Halloween 2020, okay? How many of your clients were you actually seeing telehealth in 2020 as opposed to 2019? My guess is, is that if it's not 100%, it's pretty darn close to being 100% as of October 2020. Now let's jump forward to October 2021, right? COVID is still very much present. Face masks are present. You know, now we have vaccines, whereas in October of 2020, we didn't. Telehealth, teletherapy is still being used. And from all Everything we can tell, COVID's not going anywhere anytime soon. They're not even vaccines for, for little children yet. So telehealth is still going to be an issue and something you need to know how to do. And that's why this is so important, because this is a tool that is absolutely going to be something you need to do as part of your practice, most likely. So being familiar in how to do it right is excruciatingly important. Right. And so besides the fact that you may have been forced online and forced to do telehealth by the nature of the pandemic. One of the things that can make compliance with telehealth tricky as it, you know, is that there are a lot of entities that govern our practice, which means that we have to know what each of those entities has to say on the topic of telehealth. So for example, all of the following places likely have a guideline that you need to follow. Your state licensing board If you go to your licensing board's website, it's very likely that you're going to find that they have some things to say about how you practice telehealth. Also, your profession's code of ethics has something to say about telehealth and best practices. Also, HIPAA has some guidelines about best practices, platforms, um, business associate agreements, confidentiality, security. And so we need to know what those guidelines are. We need to be able to implement those guidelines into our practice. And obviously with the pandemic, there have been some ways that that has loosened up a little bit and some things that would not have been okay before in terms of platforms 
Um, Some changes were made to be a little bit more flexible, but it's still there and we still need to be aware of it. And then there's also your professional liability insurance. And I know that when the pandemic first hit, my professional liability insurance had a website set up with information about best practices and also how uh, telehealth is conducted. And that's not to mention insurance companies. If you take insurance at your office, insurance companies often have an opinion about telehealth, how telehealth is conducted, what platform you are using, do they pay, do they not pay? And so now the question is, have you personally checked out each of those resources to see what they require or expect of you as you provide telehealth services? And if you haven't, then it's really important that you take the time now that things are a little bit slower, now that we're a little bit out of that crisis mode that we may have been in initially to make sure that we're going back and looking at each of those resources. Yeah. And the consequences there, of course, are that if you're taking insurance and you do a teletherapy session or sessions and you submit it to insurance and you haven't done what Melissa said, you likely are going to get some sort of notification back from your insurance company that's going to say, nope, Sorry, not covering you for these sessions, right? That's just our rules. We're not accepting it, right? Or if you take MA, which is actual, you know, federal and state funding, it's funded by the taxpayer, um, it is a government program, there are very specific rules of what you can and cannot do, and you must know those, right? It's really important. The other thing I want to point I want to make, and this is true from a broader perspective, but it absolutely applies when it comes to telehealth, is that or teletherapy is there are times where something can be unethical and not illegal, and something can be unethical and illegal, right? And so when it comes to teletherapy, this is a place where there are times where you can be unethical for one reason and doing something that's against the law for another reason, but they're both present. And so that's why, to Melissa's point, it's so important. You know what your licensing board's rules are. You know what the law is saying, what you can and cannot do here. Yeah. So Dan, you talk to mental health clinicians all the time and you've been working with them throughout the pandemic. What are some of the biggest questions that you get about Mm -hmm. telehealth and maybe what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see happening? Mm -hmm. You know, the questions and we've sort of touched on it, right? The questions usually vary like, well, you know, if my client in this state, you know, if they're going away to college, you know, you know, but I treat them and they're Maryland resident. You know, what does the, the law say? Um, there's very specific Maryland code that addresses this, that a Maryland a practitioner um, in Maryland um, has to be licensed in Maryland, um, you know, and or the client has to be in Maryland. Right. So you have to make sure you understand and know how that's applied. You have to make sure that you understand when you're doing teletherapy that you're complying, like I said, with your ethics. Those are the questions that come up around that. People then will ask, well, what do I need to be doing as I'm doing teletherapy? Are there steps I need to be doing? Um, In another episode, we're going to go over to teletherapy informed consent um, ad ad nauseum, but you need to also make sure that you're brushing up and make sure that your teletherapy informed consent is something that's being done right. There are two big areas that I see practitioners make big mistakes on, not intentionally, right? It's not that they're trying to intentionally skirt the law here. It's either they don't know or don't realize. Um, And these are really big mistakes, right? So I'm going to go over them and break them down a bit. All right. The number one, and this is a much bigger one, um, is someone will hand me their informed consent to review. And I'll look and I'll go flip through and I'm going through it, reading it. And I'm like, where's, where, where does it talk about teletherapy? And then I'll get it to it. And it's like a paragraph right? Sometimes less on telehealth. And I'm like, really? 
Like we literally just said about how quickly the transition went from being fully in office 2019 to being completely remote in 2020 to now maybe being some sort of hybrid, but teletherapy is still here, right? It's going to be here. It probably will be here going forward forever. It's not a tool that's going to be going away. And you only have a paragraph about it, right? You go through ad nauseum on, on your informed consent on all these other things that clients should know, but teletherapy, you only dedicate a paragraph to. That's probably not going to cut it. Um, and like I said, we'll, we'll cover this more in depth in another episode. But what I tell clients is you really need to have either attached or in a separate document, your own telehealth informed consent, right? That's laying out all the things you want the client to know, right? And I guarantee you those things that they should know or that you need to be telling them, you're not telling them in that, that small paragraph. Number two, it's kind of a two-parter, all right? I ask clients this all the time. I'm like, when you start a teletherapy session, do you find out where your client's located? And usually, in most cases, the person's like, oh, yeah, of course. And they'll tell me. And I would say about 60% of the time, they get it right. 40% of the time, they tell me something and I stop them and say, nope, that's actually not the best way to do it. And what they tell me is, okay, yeah, are you home? Yeah, I'm okay, I'm home. Are you, where are you? Oh, I'm at. Okay, no problem. That's not good enough, in my opinion, right? The problem is, you need to find out where your client is and establish exactly where they are. Hey, you know, are you home today? No, I'm at my aunt's. Okay, just in case we just disconnected or something else happens, can I just have, you know, the, the, the address or the phone number there? Great, no problem. Why? Right? Because first of all, if you don't ask that question at all, and this person is visiting their aunt, their grandma, their friend, their sister, whoever, you have a client who's out of state that you're doing teletherapy with right now. That's probably something you should know. So that's one reason the right? their client's going to tell you information about their location. Oh, I'm sitting in a coffee shop right now. Probably not the best place for them to be having a teletherapy session. No. Nope. Right. So you need to be verifying where they are and having the, you know, it's like a two minute conversation, but you need to be establishing that. Where are you? So I know. The second reason it's important is that in case there's an emergency situation, the person has a heart attack, uh, medical or psychiatric emergency, do you have? the location of where they are so the medical personnel or someone from their family or someone can, can reach them. And I just tip my hand a little bit about what the second part of this question that I'm covering is. And that is you have to have an emergency plan. It's not enough, in my opinion, as an attorney to just say, well, I discussed with the client and we agreed to some ground rules. Great. Six months from now, are you going to remember the ground rules? Is the client going to remember the ground rules? If there's ever a question over who knew what, when, and you had to break confidentiality, how do you verify what was agreed to or not agreed to, right? It's not in writing. So what I always tell, say to clients is your emergency plan needs to be written down. It needs to be signed by the client, right? I authorize you to contact my mom, my wife, if something happens. And, you know, of course, you have a duty to contact emergency personnel if there's really a crisis. But let's say it's more of a matter of, hey, I have to break confidentiality to let his mom know that this child's mom or this teenager's mom know that something's going on right now, right? Well, unless you have that signed authorization, you have a problem. So getting that signed authorization up front is often a lot easier. Hey, part of my teletherapy forms, here you go, just sign this. This is our emergency plan that we talked about, summing up you know, who I can contact in an emergency and when. Great, no problem, sign, you're done. It's so important that that emergency plan be signed and in writing. Yeah, and also going back to your comments about location, that's another big question that comes up. Mm -hmm. from therapists about um, if my client goes out of town for work or vacation, right. can I still see them? What happens if 
I'm out of town? What if I'm in a different state for some reason? Am I still able to see my client? And this is something where it's really important that clinicians are looking at their state regulations for their state licensing board, because there's going to be information in there about where the client needs to be located in order to provide services. Um, And a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, it just matters where the client is located. I can be anywhere as long as a client is located in the state where I'm licensed. And that might not be true. And that's important that you know that that might not be true because while it's commonly stated, there is some truth behind that idea that your client has to be physically located in the state where you are licensed. It is also true that where you are physically located as a therapist might matter as well. And you need to know where to go to get that information. So you definitely need to be going to your state board and looking at the regulations to see, does your state licensing board have an opinion about your physical location as the provider? And not only does your state board have an opinion on that, but the state where you might be physically located, if you're in another state for vacation or a conference, Mm -hmm. that state also likely has an opinion on whether or not you can see your client in your home state or not. And so you need to be making sure that you're checking on both of those things. It's not just about where the client's located. It might also be where you are located, but you have to do the research to make sure that you're following those guidelines. And and again, and that's an example where we're talking about the ethical considerations and the legal considerations, right? And that sometimes they crisscross, right? Sometimes you can do something that can violate both, right? This is a good example, right? It's not just you have to know your ethics here. You have to know the laws. You have the law of the states that you're in if it's something else other than the one you're licensed in, right? So you do have to do your due diligence a bit, right? And I just want to make one point. I've had people tell me, oh my God, this is so scary and so overwhelming. And I'm like, it doesn't have to be. Really, it's just a couple things you need to make sure you check off before you do a teletherapy. And if you do that, you should, in most cases, be okay. Yeah. And and while it can be exciting to think about reciprocity across states with licensing um, or people who are paying attention to that compact and being able to practice in other states, if you're someone who's licensed in multiple states, and therefore doing telehealth, it's also important that you're following the guidelines in that state where you're practicing and knowing the differences between the guidelines in one state where you might be seeing clients and the guidelines in another. Um, So for example, I'm licensed in two different states and the reporting guidelines in Maryland for reporting child abuse, even for an adult survivor is pretty strict. Um, But those same guidelines don't apply in the other state where I'm licensed. And if I were to report the information in that state based on the requirements of Maryland, I would be getting in hot water potentially because I'd be breaking confidentiality. Mm -hmm. And so nowadays, I think more people are getting licensed in different states, which is exciting. And it's nice that we have um, maybe some greater mobility, but it's also important that we know the guidelines in those states where we're licensed and practicing. Absolutely. And and also, I think it's important to know that another best practice that kind of relates to some of this is this is not the kind of thing you can just hop on in case you thought it was and just be like, okay, I have my Zoom set up. Let's do teletherapy, right? (laughs) I'm making a face right now. You are, right? Melissa totally is. And I, and I cringe. And this has only come up once or twice where I've heard this. And I'm like, yeah, don't do that. You do need to make sure you have the right platform. You do need to make sure you are taking steps to protect confidentiality. Because again, 
much as when the person sitting in the office across, you know, maybe the room from you in a chair telling you information, if they're telling you this information via tele, you know, via um, remotely, it's now being transmitted to you through the internet, through, you know, your systems, your technology. And it has to be a secure platform. Certain information that is protected under HIPAA and maybe even state law is being given to you through, you know, a technological format, I guess, right? Uh, a digital format. So there's certain things you have to do to protect that on both ends. You know, the client certainly has their share of the obligations that you have to make clear to them as well. Yeah. And that's also making me think about the importance of our community's trust in us and the services that we provide and also their trust in us and confidentiality, the security mm -hmm. of their information. I know for me over the pandemic, I had a few people who reached out, they were seeking services. And some of them really, really, really wanted in-person because they were concerned about confidentiality and didn't trust that their information could be secure online. I've also had some people who were really nervous about putting a credit card on file because maybe they're just not as comfortable or informed about online services. And so they were like, is this a scam? Is this a real deal? Are you a real provider? And of course, as mental health providers, we know that all of that information can be verified by going to a board website, verifying someone's license. You can verify that a business is legitimate, but the public isn't always informed of that. And so we really have to do our due diligence to make sure that we're doing what we have to do, one, for compliance, but also for the community's trust in the service that we're providing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and by the way, if you ever have an issue where the board is going to be investigating it, and we, we've had Risa. Uh, Ganell on who talked about this, the board's focus, if they investigate you for this, it's going to be because they're looking at it from a consumer protection standpoint, from protecting the field, protecting the industry, protecting the residents of Maryland from bad behavior, right? And so that this is why it's so important. These are why these regulations are in place, right? They're not make, to make it more difficult for you. They're not meant to you know, make it onerous to try to prevent you from doing teletherapy, but they're meant to regulate it so that it's done a certain way so that everyone is, does it safely and is protected. Yeah. So a few things that we would encourage you to do if you're listening to this and you're going, oh yeah, maybe I don't really have the most thorough mental health, like telemental health informed consent that you know that there's something that you can do to take a next step. Um, if you know that you have not checked in with your insurance contract or the state regs for your license about those guidelines, if you're not aware of the HIPAA guidelines around those platforms, mm -hmm. we're going to encourage you today to go and sit down, do some research, find uh, the places where you can access that information and make sure that you're informed and also that it's informing your practice once you have that information. So that way you're using the information um, to do what you need to be doing in your practice. Now that we're not all, you know, it's, we're not in the same position as we were two years ago where we were forced to go online. You may have heard the episode that Dan and I did on practicing within your scope of competence two years ago. Telemental health may not have been within your scope of competence, but we didn't really have a choice in some ways when we were looking at safety. But now you have more experience. You've had plenty of opportunities to get information. Now we just really need to make sure that we're doing all the things we need to do to cross our T's and dot our I's to keep our practice safe and also to protect our clients. And I would remind people, if you haven't listened to it, we did an episode on your team, right? And I would remind, I would say to you that if you're like Melissa said, if you're someone who's like, oh man, I'm, I don't know if I'm doing this the right way or I'm not sure what I should be doing, go think about your team. 
right? If it means sitting down with someone who's a practice consultant or talking to an attorney, do it, right? Because the little bit of money that you're going to spend, right? Even if it's a medium amount of money that you're going to spend to get the right things in place are going to be far less expensive than what it would cost you if you screw this up. Yeah. And it'll be a lot less stressful to get help. So if you're feeling overwhelmed by all this and you're like, yeah, but I'm not even really sure where on the state board website to go. This just feels really overwhelming. You know, reach out to someone like Dan said, you don't have to Mm -hmm. do it on your own. That's going to make the process easier. And Mm -hmm. it's better to practice prevention than to be on the other end of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've looked, um, I know Maryland does for sure, but I've looked at other states and I will say, I'm not going to pick a state off the top of my head, but I've looked at a number of other states and most of the boards that I've looked at in other states, they all seem to list the relevant um, laws and ethical guidelines that a practice should know. So usually, as Melissa said, it's really pretty simple. If you go to your board's website, they'll usually tell you where to go to look this stuff up. Yeah. So I think that's about it for today. Um, that wraps up this conversation. We thank you for joining us. And we hope you found this useful and informative. And maybe if it's something that you find you need to work on, um, helps kind of give you some direction on how to do that now. As always, you can reach out to us via Facebook or on the web. Um, We are always interested to hear from you. I would love to hear back from people if they do have their own anecdotes or questions or comments, um, especially on this topic. But other than that, we will talk to you soon. Thanks again and, and take care. Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit protectingyourpractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.